2: Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep practical wisdom.
1: Hello, and welcome to Insight Hour. I'm Joseph Goldstein, and I'm here with my friend, Raghu Marcus.
2: Hi. Hi, Joseph. Great to be here. And uh, I just, uh, we had a, a lovely talk some time ago, I don't know, a year or so ago, uh, around uh, your book, Mindfulness, which I love, uh, which is a book. And I said to you at the time, we have a, you know, 45 minutes or an hour, whatever we do here for this podcast, uh, there's no possibility of covering the enormous amount of information that's in this book. So uh, this is a bit of a continuation because it's of my, in my own interest here. Okay? Um, so I, I'm going to kind of jump all over the place. It's not going to be very, uh, uh, it'll all be connected as it is in this book. But uh, I, um, I'm going to start with something that's dear to everyone's heart. And everyone has a pile of trouble with it in this life. And it's around sex. okay? Mm-hmm. And it's under the chapter Right Action and, um, and, and around mindfulness around this subject, which is a difficult subject. We have, uh, and there's two parts to this. One is for, uh, which you talk about, when one is for lay people and one is for monastic people. Mm -hmm. and I'm going to introduce one other thing. I don't know if you can work this in. It's something that happened to me, so I'll give you a little bit of my own experience, and it was through a book that I read many, many years ago called Kali's Odia. It's a shaman story of initiation, and what it is is um, way, I think in the earlier part of last century where this stuff was still vibrant in in India and where there's a whole village dedicated to the worship of Kali in a very pure way. And there was a shaman there, and they would actually bring everyone through the, this tradition and through these rituals to become ultimately free, obviously. And uh, and they initiated young people as well. And, of course, part of it was tantric practices. And, um, and there was one section which just... Uh, I'm going to admit to uh, my little earlier life of some promiscuity, okay, and unconsciousness, unmindfulness. And in this book, it talked about in the moment that you uh, get together uh, with another person in coitus, you are opening yourself wide open in that moment because everything is being let go and all so- you are opening yourself potentially to all sorts of vibrations, entities, whatever it is, uh, that can come into this if you are not mindful and conscious. I never forgot that after that. I don't know if I totally straightened out, but I did straighten out somewhat. Uh-huh. Uh, and so th- that's just something I wanted to throw in here with, um, with the consciousness and mindfulness that you t- speak of. And, uh, and, and there's one uh, one of your teachers, Sayadaw Upandita, talked about it. And you mentioned, and I love this, uh, around lust. Lust cracks the brain. <laughs> what a great, great yes. <laughs> little. Can you just talk about that and how, obviously, uh, our, most of our audience is probably lay people, but I think on both aspects.
1: Well, first to say, I, I, I don't have any experience at all with tantric teachings, so I can't really speak to uh, that whole way of understanding or practice. Though I'll talk on a much, uh, one might say, more basic or, or simple level. Um, and in one way, even though it's a very complicating, complicated force in our lives, I think in one way we can understand it quite simply. Um, that is, it's a very powerful energy, as we all know. It's a very pleasurable and can be an overwhelmingly pleasurable experience. And so we really need to uh, bring some awareness to that activity. Because if we don't, as, as Saido Pandita said, uh, lust does crack the brain in the sense that it's overpowering. We, we lose all sense of balance and we lose what we can lose all sense of balance and all sense of awareness of what's actually going on within us. You know, we just get caught up uh, in the passion of the moment and because it's so pleasurable, you know, we can be carried along with it. So I think the real challenge for us is to see, is it possible, you know, to bring more mindfulness and awareness to the experience? And part of it. Uh, We can actually prepare for part of of it in our meditation practice uh, as we learn to be mindful of pleasant, mindful of pleasant experience, pleasurable experience, without the grasping, without the clinging. Now, this takes practice because our conditioning, of course, you know, as most people know, something pleasant comes. We like it and we want more of it. Something unpleasant we don't like it and we want to get rid of it. So the meditation practice is a way of uh, deconditioning uh, those responses, which are quite hardwired in us. You know, it, it actually takes a practice and, uh, I would say, a discipline, you know, in a spiritual practice, to learn how to be with pleasure and displeasure or pleasure and pain with some degree of equanimity. With some degree of openness um so i think that's that's part of it you know ha- how are we relating to these very pleasurable sensations and uh, pleasurable energies in our body um i think a, a very interesting exploration for people would be uh, To really uh, highlight the distinction between uh, love and desire. Because those are two really different things. And one way of doing that, and and perhaps, again, to do it uh, in some practice situations before we're in the throes of sexual passion, which can really carry us away. But even in the course of you know just our, our daily life, to see in relationship to other people what the difference is in our experience of wanting something, desiring something in relationship to them, and loving them. You know, and in my exploration of this, I've really seen that they're two different things, two two very different energies. You know, when I'm wanting, it's like a, a taking in, a bringing in. And in a, a really loving energy, it's, a, it's like a generosity of the heart. It's a giving. And they're really quite different. But I think for many of us, these two have become so intertwined. You know, we just, how could there be love without desire? You know, uh, so this exploration, I think, done in the more the more uh, ordinary interactions we have with people we're close to, then we might be able to bring some of that discernment into times of sexual uh, relationship, you know, where, where the energy gets more powerful but what's prompting it or what's what's intertwined with it, you know, and unless we're quite enlightened, undoubtedly desire will be part of it, you know, but how big a part, you know, is it in the midst of, you know, that powerful, pleasurable energy? Is it more about getting or more about giving? Hmm. You know, where is the love in the midst of it? So I just see all of this as an exploration and, and a powerful one.
2: I, I like what you say here. If you want to understand the experience of sexual desire, uh, go on retreat.
1: Well, yes. <laughs> yeah. I'll just let me let me just add something to that, because one of the things that can happen, especially in longer, intensive practice, and I've uh, had this experience many times again, uh, much more when I was younger, but in meditation itself, sometimes sexual energy gets very aroused just by sitting, you know, and it, it could be because we're indulging in sexual fantasies, but it could also be just the opening of that energy channel in our body. And so one can be sitting in meditation and really be having orgasmic experiences and it was very interesting for me to see my the evolution of my relationship to that because when this kind of energy started happening in my meditation my first response was this is great (laughs) (laughs) you know i'm just sitting there and and, you know all of this waves of pleasure of, of sexual pleasure would would be arising so at first there was I really liked this a lot. But, you know, as it continued, at a certain point it became annoying, you know, because I saw, okay, this is not really on with leading in terms of my meditation. So after some time, it's like my mind did the opposite. It was pushing it away. So, okay, don't bother me, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And I saw that that didn't work. That was just aversion. It finally came to a place where, the mind really abided in equanimity; it could open to it, it could feel it, it was experiencing the pleasure of it, but without wanting mm. without aversion, and then it was just like any other energy flowing through, so actually being on meditation can teach us a lot you know about about these powerful energies that arise
2: i 'll tell you a story because you this is all being. What you just said made me remember an incident, and this is when I first met you. Um, I met you in Munindra's room. I think we discussed this uh, mm-hmm. last time. I'm sitting in the Goenka course in Bodhgaya, and about three or four, a lot of people, I don't know, a couple of hundred people in mm-hmm. this, uh, on the roof there, yeah. and a, a two or three people in front of me was a woman. Mm-hmm. And we're in the middle of meditation, I don't know, halfway through the hour or something, Suddenly, Mm -hmm. she starts emoting this paroxysm of orgasm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was like it could have been a 4X rated uh, movie. I mean, it was insane. And Uh me, little guy, 24 years old, I I never, ever thought or dreamed that anything (laughs) like this was going to happen. And it set the whole, everybody off. I mean oh. everybody was just focused uh-huh. Uh-huh. just like zoom on this woman, and it was incredible energy Yes. and then suddenly, booming from Goenka, who right. people who don't know he was a, a he had this large belly and he could boom out uh, yes. the you know whenever he talked it would just boom and it was a knit. Yeah. <laughs> impermanence yes. and then it was like a balloon the air went out immediately <laughs> it was yes. so fantastic yes oh boy but no,
1: there is a lot to learn yeah you know, and, and it is so important because you know this sexual energy can just become such a such a powerful force and it is a powerful, powerful force in people's lives and well-directed it can really be in the support of love and ill-directed we know how much harm Mm. can happen
2: yeah especially you know how the indulgence in fantasies of course is so Mm. can be so destructive uh you know that that's one thing that um how it it takes you out of the moment because it is so powerful yeah um I want to talk about conditioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, certainly we have, we are conditioned. <laughs> I mean, you just talked about how, actually, how we're conditioned to respond to love with sex. That sex is going to be automatically part mm-hmm. of that, and it's, and it's, you know, it's a sucking kind of a thing and, and when i when i was uh, first met uh, neem karoli baba maharajji after i left you and we went up to the mountains uh i noticed that in myself mm-hmm. i noticed that the energy of love was so powerful and was so unconditional that my conditioning was to have sexual thoughts around mm-hmm. that and and it was so disturbing to me i thought oh my god i'm like the worst human that ever lived how could i around this and i actually ramdas of course was with us and i actually had to do a psycho session with ramdas uh-huh. just to get it out of me but conditioning. Um, and to
1: realize everybody was <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's, right. It's, it's,
2: well, uh, you know how we realized that, actually. Uh-huh. We ended up, because Munindra was supposed to come and teach us uh, Vipassana, uh-huh. and he was supposed to come to Kosani, and we had uh-huh. rented a place in the whole nine yards, but his mother got sick and he couldn't come. Uh-huh. But we, uh, we went through with it anyhow. And then Maharaji kept sending people, oh, you yeah, go to Kosani, meditate uh-huh. with Ramdas. You just get rid of uh-huh. them, right? <laughs> so suddenly there was like 30 people in a uh-huh. dormitory in a Dharamsala, and he would see people I've told this in another podcast, but it's worth yeah. it here. He would see people and do just sit with them and contact them in their in their yeah. eyes and say, "Whatever it is yeah. that you're afraid to say, say it now, uh-huh. and then uh-huh. <laughs> all uh-huh. this stuff would, so meanwhile it's India. everybody right. on either side could hear everything because the walls right. were so thin right. and upstairs and downstairs so Everybody realized, holy shit, we all have the same it's about sex. (laughs) We all have the same issues. So conditioning and you talk about and I'd love for you to tell this experience. Um you were teaching at a retreat in Mendocino with Sharon salzberg Mm -hmm. Um and sitting in the talking before the meditation and all of a sudden and quite spontaneously you had an experience and you talk about that and also uh in reference to Ramdas and Joy, I also found that interesting. If you can remember that. I mean, yeah, it's a big book. I don't think that I'm making you to remember stuff. But. No, well, uh, that experience is, you, you, uh, <laughs> you,
1: it was very clear. So uh, I was you know, teaching this course in the Redwoods up in Mendocino, and before going into the hall in the morning, I was sitting with my colleague, Sharon Salzberg, and just spontaneously, completely unexpectedly, this cloud of smoke and ash. It's like I burped it out of my mouth, and it was so striking. and it was this sweet smelling ash, and I had no idea what had just happened. I mean I had never had anything happen like that before. So I was just both of us were just sitting there wondering, but we didn't know, and so we just carried on with our day. Uh, and then a couple of weeks later, when we were beginning to teach our first three month retreat, uh, we were back across the country in Maine. I was standing in a uh, line in front of the bank teller, you know, before the retreat had, uh, started and right in front of the bank teller, the same thing happened. This, <laughs> this cloud of smoke and ash kind of came out of my mouth. So then I got really curious and what, you know, what is going on? Uh, and now was the time when Ramdas was still uh, connected with Joya, you know, this uh, teacher in Brooklyn uh, and, you know, supposedly had different powers and psychic abilities. And so uh, I had somebody ask her about it. And she said, oh, it's the verbudi, you know, the holy ash of Sai Baba, because he was known in you know, this Indian saint for creating this ash. So I oh, that sounds good. <laughs> I like that one. And then some months later I was with Munindraji, you know, my my first Dharma teacher, and I told him about it. And he just kind of said, oh, it is the fire element, you know, just the elements in the body manifesting in a certain way. So that was a little less uh, appealing, but <laughs> perhaps more realistic. And then a few months after that, I was with our teacher Deepama, who was this woman in Calcutta who was this extraordinary yogi, you know, with high, high levels of realization and psychic power and samadhi. And she was, she was an amazing woman. Um, and so I asked her about it, and she just looked at me and she said, Oh, you must have some disease. <laughs> it was such a lesson in concepts. The experience was what it was, you know, and then three different interpretations, you know, some of which I liked, some of which were not quite as appealing, but they were all concepts, they were all just ways of interpretation. Yeah. Uh, I had no idea, you know, really what what it was about, and it has never happened again. Uh, but it was a very good lesson in how we can get attached to our interpretations of experience and how, in many cases, it's limiting, you know, and it takes us away from the direct experience itself as being just what it is. Mm. We, we I find that a lot, you know, in teaching meditation, People will have you know, many different kinds of experience, uh, experiences and want a name for what's happening. They don't really need it because they're having the experience. They know what it is. But there's this strong impulse to want to fix it with a name or a concept. And for the most part, uh, I find that's not that helpful. It's better just to be with the flow of experience, and as uh, Goenka said to that to that woman, uh, "It's all impermanent anyway." You know, so whatever the experience is, there's nothing to hold on to.
2: Talk about conditionality, though, and con- how we have uh, how, I mean, it's probably concomitant with uh, habitual patterns, our conditioning, our habitual patterns. These are very very strong things. I was just talking to my wife yesterday about it Saraswati, um about you know I mean in in our marriage and our going back and forth mm-hmm. and and you know in in any relationship there's a way which you understand you, there are triggers that mm-hmm. that bring out that conditioning. And and then I said to her in this particular case, we just oh geez, I hope she's not going to be pissed that I'm talking about this, <laughs> but it's a good example. Um, I triggered something, and, and she said, well, you could be mi- more mindful of that trigger, and, and I said, I, I, I'm trying to be, and I certainly want to be, but it's a knee-jerk reaction to that particular thing that happened and and that be, you know we're talking about a habitual tendency it is so difficult to cut the root of that habitual tendency because of conditioning can you talk a little bit about that
1: well just let me ask another question did is the particular conditioning you're talking about did it um manifest in terms of speech y- uh
2: yes i said something, something. You said. yes yeah. yes
1: okay so i think this is an arena uh, that is hugely important and very interesting that we can work with um, all the time <laughs> that is paying uh, learning to be mindful and learning skills and ways of being mindful with regard to speech, because just in the course of our lives we, we are talking a lot, whether it's in you know our close relationships or just at work or. With friends, and there are very many deeply conditioned patterns, you know, that we have with regard to speech. Uh, so I've just found this, and of course, you know, as we you know, it's one of the elements of the eightfold path. The Buddha talked about right speech, and even more than that, I don't know if you're familiar this there's, you know, in Buddhism there are a lot of lists. So one of the lists is of the ten unwholesome actions to avoid like not killing and not stealing, not committing sexual misconduct. You know. So four of the 10 unwholesome actions have to do with speech. So I find that amazing. I mean, So the Buddha is clearly giving a lot of emphasis to this arena, you know, more than any other area of activity. Four of the unskillful actions have to do with speech. So I think it's helpful to first uh, recognize what the four are, and then make it a practice to actually undertake it as a discipline uh, to keep an eye out you know, for the impulse to speak before the words actually come out of our mouths. Uh, and so I'll just give you one example, um, which I I love playing with. And I can't remember whether we talked about this last time or not, but one of the one of the forms of unwholesome speech is useless talk. And the, the word in Pali, it, it, it's really onomatopoeia, because the Pali word sounds just like it is. It's sampapalapa. <laughs> sampapalapa. Avoid sampapalapa. So one of the practices I do and this this arises so often just in our ordinary social interactions, you know, we're hanging out with friends. We're just relaxing and having a good time. People are conversing. And so often I'll see an impulse to say something that is completely useless. It has no, it has no bearing on anything. It's just a comment that is basically expressing, here I am. That, that's, its only, that's its only function. So I love it when I can be mindful enough to see that impulse to some pop you know, to see that arise in the mind. And if I can be mindful enough and say, no, I don't have to say that. And what's amazing is that it always feels better not to say it. Than to say it feels like a little victory over Mara, you know, it's just (laughs) Mara is trying to get us to do something, you know, unwholesome. And it's just a moment of, of restraint and it feels energizing instead of enervating. So that's just one, one little example, you know, or, you know, we could make it a practice to really watch if we're saying something unkind you know, something harsh, or uh, obviously if we're saying something untrue, you know, if, if we have this as a reference point in our minds and intentionally make it a practice in our lives, it brings mindfulness, you know, into so many uh, aspects of our day and our lives because it's such a big arena of activity. So I think that speech is, is a fantastic place of practice so in the example you used i would look back and see okay what what got triggered you know what was it what kind of feeling arose in you that gave rise to the speech what kind of speech was it was it harsh was it angry was it blaming judgmental whatever it was and by seeing your own pattern, then really taking it on as a practice. Okay, I'm going to watch out for this arising. But it but it helps to actually have recognized it uh, clearly. You know, so so that you do have a better chance uh, of catching it before it manifests. Uh, and of course, it's a practice because many times we we miss it, and out it comes again. (laughs) So just to see that, you know, without blame, without self-judgment, but with interest. Hmm. So I I think this is a a huge, important area.
2: Actually, when I, as you're talking, and I start to think about it, and four out of the ten? Yeah. Four out of ten? That's almost half of everything. Yeah, exactly. Okay? And then, so you start to think about that, and you go... Yeah, all day long. And not only what you say, it's how you say it.
1: Yes, yes. Uh,
2: I mean, uh, you know, I come out of radio in the early days. Uh-huh. That's how I met Ramdas in Montreal. Uh-huh. And we had this, uh, you know, powerful radio station. Mm-hmm. And um, we used to experiment with not what we said, how we said yes, it. Yes, yes, yes. And part of it was, it was, you know, a joke amongst us because the. Uh, the government the ruling body was called the ftc i what mm-hmm. it's called here in in the states uh, uh any swear word and you would be cited right <laughs> so we would get on the air and go oh god what a beautiful day there is a lot of shit out there but it's <laughs> quite you know we just use this tonality not once did anyone ever complain <laughs> yeah <laughs> and using all the four letter words yeah yeah, right? yeah. And it was a great lesson. One,
1: one, uh, one way of practicing, of, of simplifying the practice, uh, which would still be quite challenging. But if we wanted to remember just one thing, I think if we really make it our practice in our speech, and this goes to what you're saying in terms of how we're speaking, uh, is to be kind. I think if we're kind in our speech, everything else will be covered. Mm. You know, we won't be... Useless talk is not going to particularly come up. We won't be lying. You know, we won't be using harsh language. And it, does mean, it doesn't mean that we can't be very forthright. You know, kindness doesn't mean, you know, we're wimpy in, in how we're relating and talking. We can be very... Clear and open and honest in a kind way. Mm. So I think that would that would really cover a lot.
2: Totally agree, Joseph. Um, I was um, contemplating right view. And uh, and our mutual friend Ramdas in the last few years has one of his uh, main teachings that he's sharing with people is about. Uh, really moving their perspective, uh, which is our perspective on a day to day basis, coming from mind, ego, etc. That uh, even in, and he's been a great proponent of awareness from day one, he would call it witness. He used that word a lot, being able to witness. The, uh, your incarnation and witness the stuff that prevents you from being free. And, uh, and I think what he was feeling was that people were using that from the wrong place or taking that practice as a mental configuration. And it may have been not uh, effectively doing what it was advertised to do. So he started talking about getting people to Breathe in. The practice was breathe into their center of their trust, into the spiritual heart, whatever, and we would call soul in Hinduism. Uh, but we can call it. It's all the same. It, it can't be different. Pure mind, right? Unconditioned mind, whatever the words are, um, and just breathe into that place. And I am loving awareness as a practice to just really move people from from this place in their heads and and into a. More the intuitive place that we have, and and I I liken that to this to right view and right view is complex. I mean, there's uh, y- you have a chapter here that that talks about it, and uh, there's diff- many different aspects of it. Uh, from uh, and the one that I want you to sort of elaborate on a little bit is worldly ease, um, and you're talking about it's the the important first step on the path because it sets the direction. No matter how long or difficult our journey may be, if we're heading in the right direction and we keep on going, we will reach the goal. If we don't know the right direction, then even with strong aspiration and efforts, we may wander for a long time and never reach our destination. And I think that's a bit of what Ramdas is doing, a completely different um, direction in a funny way, being that... I think he's taking something and saying you can use this particular practice uh unfortunately it it can be used in a way that reinforces those things which take you in the wrong direction by virtue of the way that people use the witness uh as a mind kind of thing I'm going to look at everything and it's all you know very dual okay I'm doing this and you know it's not it's self referential basically so can you talk a bit about the uh, worldly ease related to right view and how right view uh, can set us in the right direction and, and related to our, our day-to-day lives and how we can use that properly?
1: Okay, this is a big question. Uh, I think there are two aspects of right view that for me uh, kind of are at the heart of it. And each one could be elaborated in great detail. But uh, in terms of the right view, which leads to a kind of worldly ease, I think that that has to do uh, basically with the understanding of the law of karma, that what we do in our actions actually bring results, depending on the quality of our motivation, the quality of our minds in doing it. You know, and so it's to understand that what we do matters. You know, every every volitional act of speech, you know, or of body or of mind, if it's done from a place of greed or anger, it's going to bring some unwholesome results, you know. And if we do it from love or generosity, it'll bring uh, some wholesome result. And we don't even have to see it necessarily in terms of, External results in our lives, although that is part of it, but we can see it very directly in terms of the mental environment that's being created by these different mind states. What's it like to have a greedy mind? You know, what's it like to have a loving mind? The suffering and ease is so apparent you know, from the fruit, as the fruit of these different mind states. And we can see that directly. It's not a question of belief. We can really just look at our minds and see what mind states bring about quality of ease and happiness, and which don't. So that has to do with what might be called worldly right view. You know, right view that leads to in, to this kind of ease in our lives. There's another kind of right view which uh, touches on some of the things you said and that has to do with um, the right view of realizing emptiness of self. So that's a whole different level of understanding. Uh, And so for example the The suggestion to be the witness. A part of it is getting at the right attitude, you know, but it could also be creating a sense of someone who is the witness or someone who is the observer. You know, and so we become identified with the witness, and so that becomes its own contraction. I think the same potential danger is there in the suggestion to drop into the heart space. It may be less of a danger because the heart space itself is so open, you know, and spacious, but I think it would be important to really, uh, become aware of the potential of identifying with that loving awareness. Oh, I'm creating an I or a self in that, rather than seeing, yes, this loving awareness is a wholesome, beautiful place or quality of mind, can it be developed without a claim of ownership? You know, without without a sense of an I or a self inhabiting it. So this is this gets very subtle and uh and it really has to do with becoming mindful of the native, becoming mindful of awareness itself. You know, so that. It's like we its mindfulness of awareness so that there is not, you know, this contraction or identification with it. So that's, that's the right view of emptiness of self, even in these deeper uh, and even wholesome meditative states. So I don't know if that clarified would.
2: No, absolutely. Yeah and I think it would be um I think it'd be really great if you expand a little bit on emptiness uh, and talk about that and uh, emptiness of self and 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 you do talk in the book about it uh, uh I think you made a reference to the 16th Karmapa when he was dying and he looked up at his his uh, disciples and said nothing happens right <laughs> I love that so much I love him so much yeah. Um, but yeah people's idea in the west of emptiness is really around uh, nihilistic yes. view so yes. it, is, it is not talk a little bit about that
1: yeah. okay so uh, emptiness is the english translation of the pali and sanskrit word uh, shunyata you know and and there's often difficulties in translation because in english emptiness has all kinds of connotations that are not part of what the Pali word means. And so we hear the word emptiness, and it's not all that appealing. You know, it feels maybe like you know, a gray vacuity or nothingness or something like that. Uh, but chinyata really means something quite else. Uh, and its most basic meaning, or two aspects of its meaning. Uh, In one, we could say it means that things are insubstantial, that there's no there's no core, there's no unchanging core to things. Like everything um, everything is empty of substantiality, even as it's appearing. So just a good example of this might be um, see a rainbow. You know, and the rainbow is beautiful and we relate to it, you know, and usually with delight. But there's not actually anything which is a rainbow other than an emerging appearance out of certain conditions coming together. You know, in the conditions of light and water and air, when they arise in certain combinations, there emerges the appearance of a rainbow. So that's how we want to understand all appearances, all experiences are arising or emerging out of changing conditions. And so that's one meaning of emptiness. The other meaning, and it's it's related, means that it's empty of self, empty of an I behind this. There's no one behind experience to whom experience is happening. So really what we could say is that if we want to use the word self, which is fine, you know, in conventional speech and dialogue, we use these terms. It's not, that's not a problem. But to really see the the term is really referring to the flow of changing experience. And we can call that flow, you know, the patterns of the flow self. But the danger is that we identify, you know, with different aspects. We identify with thoughts, or feelings, or emotions, or, uh, and most subtly, we identify with awareness. That's that's the uh, that's the most subtle nest of self. And so, our practice is the practice of seeing this flow of changes. And deconditioning that identification, and so we see even awareness is not self; it is what it is, but it doesn't belong to anyone so so all of that you know is contained within this English word emptiness. And, mm-hmm. you know many volumes have been written on it, so this is just a very short little <laughs> excerpt, yeah.
2: But wouldn't it be great everybody who's listening to this out there that you woke up in the morning and there wasn't that constant self referential me i mine I've got to do this, I've got to get up and do that I'm going to have my coffee i'm i you know everything around me supports the me that I am, and I'm going to continue on that path all day. Would't it be nice if there was a break in that? And that well, one,
1: one way to actually practice it, you know, even on, uh, on whatever level, you know, of mindfulness we might have, um, one, of the, one of the strongest patterns of identification is with our thoughts. And so that itself could be a great practice to undertake, even if it's just for a few minutes at a time, you know, to be either sitting or just moving about in our day, doing our various things. So the thought comes, I'm going to have a cup of coffee. Right there, we can make it a practice to see that that is a thought. Right? And the thought comes and goes. The thought itself is empty of self. And the more we can see thoughts in this way, as just arising and passing, it then gives us more space to choose which thoughts we act on. So instead of being the slave of thought, which we mostly are, you know, thoughts arise, and because we're identified with them pretty completely, go here, go there, get married, get divorced. <laughs> you know, it's whatever, our whole life, we're just, we're just at the beck and call of our conditioned thought process. But what is so interesting, I find this one of the most interesting aspects of the whole meditative journey, is to ask the question as the mind is thinking, to ask the question, what is a thought? Not what is the thought saying, which is what we more usually do and get involved in the content, but more at times, even for a few moments, what is a thought as a phenomenon? And what's so amazing is that when we're looking at The nature of thought directly, and we have endless opportunities to do this because, you know, thoughts are going through our minds thousands and thousands of times a day. We see when we're looking at it directly, we see that a thought as a phenomenon is little more than nothing. It's hardly anything. It's just this little blip in the mind. But because we're not Being mindful of it in that way, we get seduced into the story, into the content of it. And when we're lost in the content, then the thoughts become this powerful conditioning force in our lives. And so this, this contrast is so interesting to me. that something when we're not mindful of, when we're not mindful of it, has so much power. And when we are mindful of its very nature, it has no power at all, so that's amazing, you know that's and this is something we can just practice again and again and again.
2: that's I'm making notes here everybody okay i'm I'm listening to Joseph, and I'm supposed to be getting all the technology right and making sure this is right for the podcast for everybody, but I can't help myself because this is. This is practical uh, stuff uh, that we can easily do and you do not have to be a Buddhist or in anything to do this.
1: Exactly.
2: Period. Um, I'd like to uh, just move to something else um, and it's restlessness and worry. I think that is such... I mean, Mm -hmm. all of these things are common to every one of us, but this is... This is something that everybody out there that's listening, this is, again, nothing to do with Buddhism here. This is to do with how do we deal with, this is, this is something so difficult in our lives, restlessness uh, and worry. And, um, you know, I, I guess you say here, in the first instructions that we practice with each of the hindrances, we notice whether the hindrance is present or absent in the mind. Desire Aversion, sloth, torpor. They're obviously subtle and obvious manifestations to restlessness and worry. We're very familiar with the obvious expressions of restlessness and worry. Would you, um, let's talk a little bit about the um, tremendous effect of restlessness and worry on our day to day lives. And and I guess, what are the things that we can, uh, what are antidotes? Mm-hmm. For for these uh, common common uh, situations, uh,
1: yeah, it's it's really important to kind of learn about this because they are such you know prevalent uh, conditioning forces you know in, in how we live. Um, so with worry, this ties very much into what we were just talking about in terms of being mindful of thoughts. Because usually worry is prompted, the the feeling of worry, you know, is prompted by different thoughts that we're having, you know, and and mostly it's thoughts about future, but maybe it's involved with thoughts of past or or even present. Uh, So first, I think it's to recognize the particular, um, the particular thought patterns that are arising, with respect, or, or which give rise to the feeling of worry. So, actually, somebody uh, on a on a retreat some time ago, and this was in a book. And maybe have you seen the book Ten Percent Happier? It's, then... it's a book. Dan Harris. Yeah, uh, right.
2: Yeah. I was gonna, and, and I know I was gonna mention that to you because there's an app. Uh, yeah, there uh, that we Joseph just, uh, participated yeah. in.
1: So, so he he asked this question, and he tells this story in the book. He said, "Well, isn't isn't it helpful? You know, um, you know, at the end of the retreat, I'm gonna be going to the airport, and what happens if I miss my plane? And isn't this something I should be worried about? You know, because he was." He, the, the book is quite quite delightful because he comes to the practice as a total skeptic, you know, and, and his description of the retreat is very funny as well. Uh, and But he raised a good point. Aren't there things in our life that we should be worried about? And I think it's because we have the sense that there is a place for it, that we use that as a um, rationalization for being swamped by it. Well, I should be worried about, this is a worrisome situation. But as I pointed out, you know, when he asked that question, I said, yes, this is something you you should be concerned about. And you plan for it. But how many times do you have to plan for it? Once, twice, three times? The 17th time you're thinking about missing the plane it's clearly not helpful, it's not serving anything. So one of the, one of the uh, antidotes, when we're caught up in worried thoughts, and especially if they're a pattern, you know, if, we're, if they're very re- repetitious, and we're not learning anything in terms of how we should address the situation, we're just caught in that cycle. We could ask ourselves with these kind of thoughts, is this useful? Just, just that simple question. Is this thought useful? And very often that's enough to unhook us from the identification. With the pattern Because we see, yes, it may have been useful the first time or second time or 10th time, but it's not endlessly useful. Right? And so it just takes us again, it gives us another perspective on the content so that at that point we can more easily drop into the awareness of this is just a thought and tune into the empty nature of thought, That it really, as a phenomenon, is very insubstantial because we see in that moment that the content is no longer serving us. So I think that kind of... uh, mindfulness of that particular pattern uh, is very helpful in terms of freeing us from simply being uh, lost in that conditioning. And some people live their whole lives in a state of worry.
2: My but mother. If, <laughs> <laughs> My poor mother. Yes. And she loved it. She it got would, to, it became her friend.
1: Yeah. Well, that's what happens. And we become so habituated to certain patterns. But... Uh, if we really become aware of how we feel when we're worried, it's not, it's really not a pleasant state. You know, there's a contraction and there's fear and there's often anxiety and a contraction. Uh, So that's another aspect of becoming uh, mindful. Okay, how does it feel in the body? But seeing how the worry is conditioned by particular thoughts so we have to see that connection, to be mindful of the thought, to ask the question, at this point, is this thought useful? And if it's not useful, and we have to be honest about that, okay. <laughs> you know, is this actually serving us? You know? And if it's not then to, to really hone in on, oh, yeah, this is just a thought, you know? and we can, we can really free ourselves from that identification it's very helpful um so there's a there's a bigger frame for all this which this was one of the transforming insights Uh, and this happened even before i had started intensive meditation this this happened when i was still in the peace corps in thailand and i was just getting interested in buddhism and And it actually, I can't remember whether we talked about this or not. The uh, when I was reading, I was in, you know, the Peace Corps teaching English in Bangkok, and I gave myself the the challenge of reading uh, uh, Proust's uh, great masterpiece. You know, it's translated in different ways: "In Search of Lost Time" or "Remembrance of Things Past." It's huge.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, you know,
1: two thousand pages. Of, so it was quite a, quite an undertaking. But in the end of the book, the whole book was prompted, you know, by his smelling something that brought back a memory of his past and the understanding that the past in that sense was in the present. Right? And so it just there was something about having read all those pages and when he was describing this understanding and it's something just clicked. And I really saw clearly that every, that our entire experience of what we call past is happening in the moment. It's happening as a thought, as a memory, but it's happening now. What we usually do though, is we have these kinds of thoughts. We're not really being mindful of them as thoughts, And so we put this concept, we create a concept of time, we create a concept past, we put this label on these kind of thoughts, and then this very uh, interesting mental gymnastics of throwing the concept out behind us as if the past is a reality back there. And we do the same thing with future. We have certain kinds of thoughts of Anticipation or planning or, or worry or whatever it may be, excitement. We put a concept future on these kinds of thoughts, toss it out in front of us as if the future is a reality waiting for us. So when I saw that the only way we're experiencing past and future is as a thought in the moment, that was huge. That was, it felt like. There had been two mountains on my shoulders of mm. past and future that I've been carrying. And I think we mostly we do carry this past and future around in our lives, burdened, you know, in a very powerful way. Because we've created a concept and invested a reality in the concept. And yet when we really see what's happening, it's just a thought in the moment. And a thought in the moment is very light. And it doesn't mean we don't respond to. sometimes these thoughts require a response. that's fine. You know we can engage with them in skillful ways, but we're not giving them this weight, you know this mountain of past, mountain of future, which we stagger under so this is another aspect that so it's not only about worry, it's a much bigger understanding you know of how thoughts condition our lives
2: yeah. yeah wonderful really of course it brings to mind be here now and that <laughs> <Exactly>. being... <laughs> oh I heard yeah, that somebody so said that once <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh Joseph uh the...
1: as if we could be anyplace else uh, yeah right, <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> um see this is a whole hour just flew by okay and more and you know, I'm not finished. I, okay, we're going to have to... If you don't mind, every every once in a while, I'm going to have to bother you a little bit more and, and get uh, more edification from this book and, and just from the practice of mindfulness, never mind anything. Um, but I would love to ask you mm-hmm. if you would just lead us in a little uh, few-minute uh, yeah. meditation uh, because uh, everybody out there, uh, what we're talking about... Uh, can really, we can only affect many of these things by virtue of practice. Yes. And that, that is definitive. We, we say that on, on our mind-rolling podcast, and I say that on the podcast I do with Ram Dass. It's just, uh, and it doesn't matter what it is, it's just the, the consistency of being able to um, move yourself to a focal point at the very least, uh, and uh, so, we're going to get something from Joseph right now.
1: Okay. okay so it's uh, and again, it, it's really very simple. As, as Munindraji, my first teacher, would say, it's simple but not easy because of the conditioning of our mind. But it is very simple, and that's why. And that's why, as you say, it's the practice of it which is so important. So, uh, if everyone could just you know sit in a comfortable, relaxed posture. In <clears throat> in this tradition, we generally close our eyes, you know, in a soft, relaxed way. Simply settle into the awareness of the body sitting. It's acknowledging there is a body. You might even use that phrase: "There is a body." simply as a way of settling into the felt experience of the body sitting. There is a body. And within this very simple, basic frame, there is a body you might become aware of your body breathing. No need to zero in on it, or to make the breath a certain way. You stay settled into the frame, the experience, there is a body. And then within that, simply become aware of your body breathing. As you breathe in, know you're breathing in. As you breathe out, know you're breathing out. It's that simple. You can repeat the phrase occasionally, there is a body as a way of staying connected to the felt sense of yourself sitting. And within that, becoming aware of your body breathing. You might become aware of other sensations in the body, points of tightness, attention, a vibration, a heaviness, a warmth, coolness. If they call your attention, open to the awareness of those sensations and notice how they change. These sensations are no longer predominant. We connect with there is a body. Breathing in, know you're breathing in. Breathing out, know you're breathing out. And be particularly aware of the arising of thought or image in the mind. As soon as you become aware of a thought or image, you might make a soft mental acknowledgement, thinking or seeing if it's an image. And notice what happens to it as you become aware. Does it disappear? Does it stay? Pay particular attention to the difference in your experience between being lost in a thought and being aware that you're thinking. coming back again and again to the felt sense that is a body. And simply being mindful of whatever arises within that frame, the breath, sensations, thoughts and images. When you're ready, you can slowly open your eyes, re-engaging with the world around you.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Joseph. Um, I want to remind everybody out there, first off, Joseph's book is called Mindfulness a Practical Guide to Awakening and uh I don't want to uh, go on any more than I go on all the time not Joseph we go David and I this is our bible our mindfulness bible but uh, folks go on out there and and pick this up on Amazon and while we're at it we'll we'll do a tiny tiny little Commercial saying, do it through the mindpodnetwork.com portal, and all of uh, the podcasters and teachers and participants get a tiny little piece of that to allow these programs to to continue, these podcasts to continue. So please do that and uh, and tune in to all of our. Uh, we uh, I think we told you this, Joseph. This is the. The MindPod Network consists of Ramdas and his low-hanging fruit family. Okay, <laughs> this is how it started. Right, it all started because somebody called me and said, "Why aren't you putting some talks out of Ramdas and do it as a podcast?" Duncan Trussell, our podcast guru. Um, so it's quite a quite a family we've had for for these many decades, and it. It's a uh, it's a warm feeling really to to have this and share with everybody out there. So thank thank you for for doing this podcast. Uh, the, You're welcome. The you know, of...
1: People might also be interested in that meditation app because it's it's like a oh, two right. week, a two week program oh. uh, that I did with Dan Harris, and it's uh, very short. Uh, you know. It's, uh,
2: what what's the name of the app, Joseph? Ten percent happier. Okay, ten percent happier. I saw it on somewhere. Maybe. oh well, it's in the app store. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I saw it, uh somebody was promoting it. Either I saw it on television, or I saw. Well, hey, oh, on... but
1: Dan Dan was he's he's a, an anchor of Good Morning America. Right,
2: right, that's right. So yeah.
1: he he was talking about it, but uh yeah, I think it's quite good, and you get. You get a little coach reminding you, you know, to sit every day and guided meditations and right. dialogue I have with Dan.
2: Oh, that's great. It's okay. fun. It's, it's a fun one. Ten percent happier, everybody. Yes. Um, and and since we're bringing this up, Joseph, uh-huh. uh, we are creating an app, too, uh-huh. for the Mind Pod network called HeartMind, the HeartMind app. Ah. And what it is, people will be able to get all of these uh, podcasts, they'll be able to get show notes and transcriptions and be able to really know which ones, and, and you'll be able to reference from one to another. Um, and we're going to have also uh, a uh, self-curated course. See, you don't even know about this, and you're going to be there. Like, what we're <laughs> doing now is... That's I'm. A, that's what
1: I like. That's the best. It is. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we're going to... So people will be able to go in, and, uh, you know, there'll be a category mindfulness uh right view and you uh-huh. that excerpt will be an excerpt That's of it. what you just talked about uh-huh. and they'll be able to say okay these are the things that I want uh, to you know listen to or put in my little uh my little section of it so and then uh and we're also going to do some meditations of of different from everybody everybody okay. will have a little bit of meditation people can can have and get a push notification in the morning also uh-huh. with a little timer and everything so yeah. okay. the more the merrier as yes. far as i'm concerned with all yes. of this so again thank you so much joseph and uh I'll do the This is the Insight Hour and Joseph Goldstein and I'm Ragu Marcus and we'll see uh, Joseph will be back in a, in a couple of weeks. Thanks everybody for listening to Joseph Goldstein's Insight Hour. We appreciate your support and ask you to continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com/joseph and either use the donate button or bookmark the Amazon portal through which MindPod and Joseph will receive a small percentage of whatever you purchase from Amazon. Thank you.